Welcome to C4 Church Online, equipping you as you follow Jesus. All right, good morning, C4. So glad that you're here this morning. Good morning to many of you watching and listening online. So glad that you are also with us this morning. If you've got a Bible this morning, if you want to turn to it on your device, or you've got a paper version, we're going to be in John chapter 8. Like I said last week, God keeps bringing so many different people to C4 week in and week out, and baptism after baptism, conversation in conversation, coffee over coffee, we continually hear how people are meeting Jesus, being changed by Jesus, meeting Jesus all over again. And so in response, like I shared last week, of what has been happening and what keeps happening, we're continuing in this new series called Encounters with Jesus, looking at six different, very different people that Jesus met. And here's the purpose for this pre-summer series. There's a few reasons. Number one, you actually might be the person that actually meets Jesus during one of these services because you are that person. For many others of us, this is going to teach us, it's going to show us how Jesus interacted with different people, how he respected them, how he talked to them, how he loved them, and we're going to learn from Jesus so we can do this better. This series is to prepare us for the thousands more to come like these people. This is a preparatory sermon series to prepare our church to have open arms to every single person Jesus assigns to our church. And then at the end of each sermon, like we did last week, we're going to take a moment to pray for that type of person, to ask God to look across the whole region to see that person, and we're going to stand in the gap and say, Lord, not out of arrogance, just Lord, meet them like you've met us. Now last week we began our series and we talked about one of the hardest people to bring to Jesus. Those that find Jesus the most unreasonable, those people who struggle much with Jesus are good people. Remember we talked about this, good, moral, kind, nice people, whether deeply secular, very religious, or spiritual, anyone who is really nice and kind and socially involved, much of the time finds Jesus very hard to meet when they truly understand what he claims about himself and also what he calls us to. See, Jesus radically says that being good or kind or religious or spiritual does not allow you and never gives you access to God. You will not find, he says, purpose in life or eternal life in what you do ever. Now, our story last week started with a very intellectual, almost professor-like person named Nicodemus who was very kind, very socially involved, very religious, and yet he was the great example of being very good and very lost all all at once. Now, this week, we're going to turn the tables. This week, we're going to look at a person who is the very opposite of Nicodemus. We move with Jesus from last week to this week, from a supposed insider now to a supposed outsider. Today, we get to see how Jesus deals with a person who many would consider unmoral, not good, definitely not kind, not religious per se, or put together for sure. Today, we're going to explore and watch how Jesus deals with a woman caught in the act of adultery. Now, we're going to be in John chapter 8, but before we get to the story that some of you may be very familiar with, you've got to understand what happens in John 7 and John 8 to catch the power of the story. 
If you read John chapter 7, here's what happens. There is now open conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders of the day. As Jesus gets very clear about what he's claiming about himself, and as his teaching is getting attention, not just seekers like Nicodemus are showing up. No, all the religious types of leaders are now showing up. So Jesus wants to make things even more explicitly clear. So this is what he does in chapter 7. Jesus goes to the temple and he begins to openly teach on the grounds of the temple, the heart of the Jewish faith. He moves from the backwater to the center. See, here's what he's doing. Jesus doesn't want to avoid conflict. He wants to start conflict. And so he begins to teach at the very heart of the temple. And as he's teaching, what happens in chapter 7 verse 12 is the beginning of our conversation. It said, among the crowds there was widespread whispering about him. Some said, he's a good man. Others replied, he's deceiving people. But no one would say anything publicly about Jesus for fear of the Jews. Now, by the way, don't get confused by that. Everyone in this context is Jewish. The Jews here mean the religious leaders of the Jews. So no one's willing to take a public stand. Everything's brewing. Everyone's talking. Everyone's messaging each other about Jesus. But then it happens. The religious leaders show up. The experts. And they begin to be very impressed by Jesus. And then they turn very quickly. At first it says in verse 15, they are blown away by Jesus. Here's what these great scholars say. How did this man get such learning without having studied? And then it turns ugly. They move just like the crowd does from being impressed, then to shock, then to anger, then to rejection, to downright hatefulness. They're amazed he has no formal education. But then as they watch his teaching and his miracles, in verse 20, ready? Five verses later, they say, you are demon-possessed, and it's all from the devil. Well, that's a start. And then in verse 27, they say, you can't be the Messiah because you're born in the wrong place. And then later in chapter 8, verse 13, they say, you are a liar. In verse 19, they say, you are a bastard. Where is your father? You're actually the product of an illicit sexual affair, and you're trying to cover it up. Then in verse 48, they even turn the tables more. They pull out all the racism and compromised faith card, and they openly call this pastor or this leader or rabbi a Samaritan, which is the highest form of disrespect for an Orthodox Jew. And then they lose it in verse 59, and they actually try killing Jesus by stoning him. Now, in the middle of all that cray-cray, that craziness, this is where we find our story that's so significant. What to do with Jesus, they're saying. Religious leaders, people like me, 2,000 years ago, have a meeting How do we deal with him? How do we kill him? How do we trap him? This dangerous leader needs to get taken out. Oh, his signs are real. His teaching is profound. But we know he is false, so let's get him. Now, there's a mix of genuine concern for the people and concern for the purity of the Jewish faith. But see, it starts from a wrong understanding of God and his work. Our story begins like this in John 8, 1. Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, and at dawn he appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The pattern continues. We talked about this for the last four years. Jesus spends time with God the Father in prayer. He meets God the Father. He prays. He gets re-energized. But not only that, he says, Father, what's next? He gets permission to do what he needs to, go to the temple to teach. So he does it. 
By this time, the leaders, as I have shared, have decided in their minds and in their hearts that Jesus is false, Jesus is dangerous, Jesus must be dealt with in the most public of ways. The conflict begins like this. Jesus, at dawn, goes to the temple. He sits down and he begins to teach. Can you imagine it? Maybe 20 people, maybe 50, then 100, 200, maybe 1,000. People are listening as he sits, preaching and talking. There are many other people walking around this encounter because what's happening? Well, they're still doing sacrifices and the guards are there. All the temple is still running as it should. And suddenly, they're shouting. There's noise from the fringe of the crowd around Jesus. And the crowd moves. It begins almost like to part like water. And a group of religious leaders are pushing a woman towards Jesus. And as they arrive, they look at Jesus and the whole ugly story comes out. It says in verse 3 that the teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery. Now, as I shared a few years ago when I preached this passage, don't miss the power of that little verse. Two groups of religious leaders are coming, and these two groups of leaders don't like each other and don't hang out with each other. The Pharisees, as we found out last week, like Nicodemus, are the great preachers of the day. They are the ones who helped invent hundreds of laws that were human-made that would prevent you from breaking God's law. They were called the pure ones, the separated ones. They were the pastors for the everyday person. They lived among the people. They had no time for religious politics. They wanted to live a pure, righteous, godly life. They were rule keepers and the best ones. The scribes, well, they were different. The scribes worked at the temple. They were the best lawyers of the day. They were involved in jurisprudence in the sense of legal and spiritual jurisprudence. They were loyal to the high priest. And there was open fights between the scribes and the Pharisees. But interestingly, now, since they have a common enemy, they're okay for today. The best religious lawyers and the best preachers of the day bring this case. Actually, they bring a person before Jesus. And it says a woman was caught in adultery. Now, either this woman is actually already married or she's engaged to be married because as we've learned as a church, in that culture, both have the same status. This comes so close to home for us as Christians when we do the Christmas story. Matthew 1.18, this is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother, Mary, was pledged, engaged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, they had sex. She was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. And because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in his mind to divorce her quietly. Joseph was a good guy. He knew that adultery would not only bring great distress to Mary and not only would shame her family. There's more than that. See, if you were engaged to be married or married and you were found guilty guilty of adultery, there was a death penalty connected to that transgression. So, it says this group of men that represent God and his work catch a woman caught in adultery. And then it says in verse 3, these very powerful, terrifying words. They made her stand before the group. Like I said a few years ago, can you feel this moment? Can you feel the terror of this woman? 
Can you feel the fear, the humiliation, the guilt, the shame? Here is a woman surrounded by men, but not just men, men with power. Not just men with power, men with religious power. And now she is thrust in front of the most famous preacher of the day. Oh, by the way, in the middle of massive crowds. Oh, in the middle of God's temple, the most holy place on earth where heaven and earth touch. The very place where God's presence is found. And here she is, in God's house, unbeknownst to her, in front of God in flesh, brought by the most powerful men of her day, in front of hundreds of gawking strangers, and then, for effect, the men cry out, Adultery! There would be silence across the temple grounds. Oh, how the crowds would talk. Can you imagine if Instagram and Twitter existed at this moment? Totally exposed. Cannot run. Caught, which means she's been grabbed either during the act or right after the act of being with a man sexually she was never supposed to be with. This is like a horrific movie, but it's real. I'm sure she was roughly clothed. Brought, by the way, let's remind ourselves, to be used to trap Jesus. And there, in the most exposed situation possible, God's so-called leaders say to Jesus, Teacher, This woman has been caught in the act of adultery. They give him status, teacher, rabbi. She was caught. This is not a false accusation, by the way. Two or three witnesses, she's guilty. She's broken her marriage. She's guilty, period. And then they lay the trap, seeming so kind towards Jesus, using all the right words and titles, even using God's very word. All looks correct, but it's not correct. They don't care about Jesus at all. They're not even really wanting to hear what Jesus has to say. And by the way, oh, let me assure you this morning, they do not care about this woman. She is a lawbreaker, homewrecker, sinner, guilty, and they're hoping they can kill two birds with one stone. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. Now, what do you say? The words would have hung in the air. The woman, I wonder if she begins to weep or shake or just is deadpan, knowing how serious this has become. I mean, Jesus knew his Old Testament, right? Oh, right, because he wrote it. He's God. The lawyers and the pastors knew it. They spent their life. The crowd would have known it. Crowds were very familiar. And by the way, oh, this woman would have known it too. As the leaders thrust both this woman and God's word at Jesus' feet and wait for the response, I'm sure that Leviticus 20.10 would have flooded into Jesus' mind. If a man commits adultery with another man's wife, with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and adulteress must be put to death. There it is. Plain as day. What could Jesus do? I mean, he had already claimed in the book of John that he was the great I am. He's claimed that he had come down from heaven. He claims not only to know the Father, but have equality to the Father. And since the Father gave this scripture through Moses, what could Jesus do? I mean, what could he say? You see, John, Jesus' best friend, got it right in verse 6. They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing, not her, him. The trap is set, but it's way better than what most of you just saw. See, we think they're trying to play at Jesus full of mercy and grace. And if he says, well, actually, you know, it's not that bad, it's okay, then they say, see, you disobey God's law, you're a false teacher, we can get you now. No, no, it's deeper than that. 
When I studied this passage a few years ago, I was shocked I'd heard this my whole life, but never caught the complexity of the trap. See, at that time, you could not take a life unless the Roman law and Roman courts gave you permission. So the Jewish leaders do something that is the best perfect setup ever. If Jesus agrees with them and they kill the woman, then they say, well, he made us do it and the Romans kill him. If he submits and points the case to the Roman courts, then the religious leaders say, see, he worships Rome, not God. God's law is second to Caesar, so actually he's false. So Jesus is trapped between his own claims, Caesar and Moses, on the temple grounds. It's a no-win situation. They've got him. There's no way out of this. (laughs) But don't forget, they actually think he's not from heaven, but he is. They ask the question, and instead of answering them, Jesus does something many of you know. He ignores them. He disregards them. It's a brilliant play. And remember, again, he's God in flesh, the second person of the Trinity. He's got no problems here. So it says that Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. Well, what was he writing down? A list of sins of those seeking to trap him? Maybe the sins of the women? Oh, maybe he's writing down a scripture. No, no, maybe he's writing down the name of the guy who's not in the picture. Side note. Maybe he's writing down nothing and he's doodling. I have no clue. Can you feel the tension, the eyes of the crowd, the terror of the woman, the legal minds of the experts, hoping they can take out the upstart cult leader and fall on his own sword? They all wait anxiously for his response, and he just keeps doodling. Well, finally, they will not have any more of it. They're lawyers. They push. They're preachers. They yell. They get close. When they kept questioning him, he straightened up and said, If any of you is without sin, just let him be the first to throw the first stone at her. He stands and he responds. And he does it, by the way, notice, on their own grounds. And says, okay, you zealots for the law. Okay, if you want to use the law, let's not play games in God's temple. Let's not just use it for our own advantages. Actually, let's not take my father's name in vain while sitting in the temple. You want to use the Bible? Let's use the Bible. See, don't you understand the law is like a nuclear bomb? And if it goes off, everyone gets affected because, oh, you're guilty too. He really brings down the conditions that he didn't want to hear. See, if you've broken the law and she's broken the law, what's the difference between you and her? Jesus says, fine. It's, it's scary. Fine. Kill her. Do it. I'm fine with that. Great. You need a few witnesses? Deuteronomy 17.6. That's what he's quoting. That's fine. I just have one stipulation this morning. That's all I'm asking. One of you needs to be perfect to throw the first stone. That's all I'm asking. Suddenly, what they attempted to make a religious and legal issue on this woman actually traps them. Jesus now moves this deeply personal moral issue between the so-called men of God and now to God himself. I love when one pastor wrote, their pious armor had been pierced as each one of them now faces the depth of their own sinful nature. Each has to deal with their own inner darkness, which is so closely intertwined self-righteousness and legalism. The savage delight in catching the woman in the act The pompous pride in being able to use her as a shameful test case. The vengeful anger which driven them, drove them to get Jesus. Are these not the ugly passions we all seek to hide? Well, before they can answer or act, 
Jesus ignores them again and goes and does his holy work in the sand. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. The older leaders leave very quickly. They know they're beaten and they're wise. The younger ones filled with passion. Oh, they wanted this so badly and they wait just a little longer, but they have to leave too. It seems that even the crowds leave and Jesus is now sitting there. The woman is standing there. What would happen next? I love Augustine who wrote, there were two persons left, the unhappy woman and compassion incarnate. It says that Jesus straightened up again. He stood. Now the last time he did this, he took out the best and brightest. So was he going to take her out too? Then he does something that hasn't happened in the story yet. He not only looks at her, he speaks to her directly. Woman, where are they? Uh, has, uh, has no one condemned you? Jesus asks the woman not a question. He asks the woman the question. Oh, and please hear this this morning. It is not a question dripping with sarcasm. It is not a question filled with unseen hate but appearing right. This is no trap. This is not a humiliating comment or a gloating comment. This is not pride that Jesus just won the oral argument of the day. This is grace and truth. This is love. This is perfect heaven-birthed love. She's no pawn in his game. He loved her. He, he came to see all people come to meet his father again. He came to bring the kingdom of God back to earth. And so he wants her too in this kingdom. He came to overcome sin and death and evil. Has no one condemned you? Well, for hours, yes. For hours she'd been branded torn through the streets. For hours, she thought that her dying memory would be dying in the temple as hundreds of strangers scream adulterer and sinner as her body is broken by hundreds of stones. Well, she just looks at Jesus and says, no one, sir. Then neither do I condemn Let it sit. I don't condemn you. Oh, by the way, if anyone has a right, it's me. I actually should condemn you. Don't you know who I am? I am perfection incarnate. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am the God who walked in the garden with Adam and Eve. I am the God who removed them from the garden. I am without sin. But I choose not to hold your sin against you because I come to offer life, not death. Now you see why I've come. Hey, look around. Young woman, do you see it? Older woman, do you see it? See all the sacrifices happening around us? See all the priests doing the work? irrelevant now. I have the power to forgive permanently. 
For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not die but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. Whoever believes on Jesus and in Jesus is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he or she has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is how Paul would pen this later in Romans 8.33. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God that justifies. Who is it, who is it that condemns? Jesus Christ who died, more than that, who was raised to life, who is at the right hand of God, is also interceding for us. But there's more. Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. And then Jesus declared, commanded, go now and leave your life of sin. Jesus says to anyone who wants him, I love you and I will not condemn you. It's interesting that he always says, I don't condemn you before he calls you to full life change. Have you noticed that? It is always his kindness that leads to repentance. It's not our confession and, and, and repentance and confession that leads to his kindness. But let me say with great authority this morning, if you have met the kindness of God through Jesus, you will change. You will surrender. You will willingly be so driven by such a profound love, you will say to Jesus, no, no, you're Lord. Jesus ends this conversation with one of the grandest statements of grace and truth. And can I say this, C4, all of you watching online, if anyone is sort of dozing off, please listen. This is such a timely word for us as a church. See, this is not love as we necessarily see it or want it. This is definitely not how our culture defines it. This is holy love. Go and sin no more. Notice, go and leave your life of sin. Jesus says your lifestyle and your ways and your way of thinking and acting now must change because you have experienced love. Go and sin no more. You cannot have Jesus as Savior and not as Lord. You cannot say I've been forgiven by Jesus and truly truly encounter him and not see radical life change. You cannot experience the love of God without the holiness of God. This actually is the picture of what a normal Christian life must look like in every culture. Our culture says God is love, so he'll accept me as I am, and then he'll keep on affirming me no matter what I do. No! That is not what the Holy Scriptures teach. That is not what the Lord of the church teaches. God is love. Jesus' love means anyone can meet God. But his love is the door to holiness. God loves everyone. That is, God welcomes everyone. But Jesus wants you to live under his lordship. God is welcoming. God is not affirming of any of us. By meeting Jesus, we are all called into a radical new life started by, based in, his statement, I do not condemn you, but then we are called to be molded by his holiness and we are called to walk in his definition of freedom. Jesus said if anyone wants life, they will have to lose their life to find it. St. Paul later would write these words in Philippians 1.9, For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. That is real Christianity right there. 
The love of God welcomes us. The love of God doesn't condemn us. The, the love of God throws our sin farther than we could ever get it back. And he says, oh, how I love you. Oh, how I cherish you. But then he says in the same breath, you must now give up what you hate or cherish the most to walk under the reign and rule of God. The beauty of God is he does not condemn us. And the power of God is he says, now live a life of freedom. For many of us who have met Jesus and have had the moment where we truly know, whether we know the exact moment or over a lifetime, we know that Jesus had looked at us and said, I don't condemn you. I just want to say something, I think, of significance. You may know it, but it's so timely. The power of every Christian story in this church matters. Because if you truly are a Christian, your story is this story. The church is made up of two groups of people. First, there's the many of us that thought that God loved us because we were really, really good and religious people. And we lived our life thinking we had the right to stone people because we were on God's side, you know. And then we found out we were sinners just like all of them and that we needed grace. And Jesus sat down with us and said, I don't condemn you for your religious, pompous arrogance. Put your stone down. Go and sin no more. And we dropped our stones. There's so many of us in the church. That's us. I love how Paul describes this because Paul is the great archetype of that. Philippians 3, 6. He said, you know my pedigree. Legitimate birth, circumcised on the eighth day, an Israelite from the elite tribe of Benjamin, a strict and devout adherent to God's law, a fiery defender of the purity of my religion, even to the point of persecuting Christians, a meticulous observer of everything set down in God's law book. The very credentials now people are waving around as something special. I'm now tearing them up and throwing them out in the trash, along with everything else I used to take credit for. Why? Because of Christ. The church is made up of so many of us who were that. The moral, good, religious people. And the other side of the church is actually, we're all the adulterous women. Who actually lived a life we were very ashamed of or couldn't get out. And thought that God would never want to talk to us. Let alone love us. Let alone ever say we were condemned. And there's a whole other group of us that actually celebrated and loved our adulterous life. And thought it was so amazing. And then we all met Jesus and we went, I'm done. Here's how Paul described that in, to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 6 9. Do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't, don't be deceived. Don't buy into the lie. The sexual, immoral, idolaters, adulterers, men who have sex with men, thieves, the greedy, drunkards, slanderers, swindlers, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But now you are washed, sanctified, justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. See, this is our story as the church, as Christians. We're all a bunch of recovering scribes, Pharisees, adulterers, or a weird mix of both all at once. 
That's not saying we don't struggle anymore. It's not saying we're not tempted anymore. But our identity, our life, and our worldview is no longer running from or celebrating any of the above. Our life is now about being grounded in the amazing truth, the amazing grace that Jesus said to all of us, I don't condemn you. And because that is so true for so many of us, we now think that the love of God is worth giving up all the stone throwing and adultery in this life because his love is better than all of that. That's the church. And oh, by the way, why am I bringing this up? Simple. Because this is how you interact with that so-called adulterous person in your life. You never pick up a stone and you never justify the sin and say it's okay. You actually say this to the person. Before Jesus, I would have hated you. I would have gone out of my way, verbally or beyond, to stone you. Or you say, what are you talking, I would have been in bed with you. But Jesus has done a new thing in my heart. He didn't condemn me. Let me introduce him to you. And you notice, Jesus sits with the person, eye to eye, presence, relationship, and honesty. Jesus shows us you've got to be in relationship, and you've got to say, no stoning, no justification. There's a third way, and it's Jesus. Now, by the way, as I've been preaching this morning, maybe you're watching online on a plane, on the go train somewhere else, you're suddenly going, I want to get out of here. I'm really angry. I want to throw my cell phone at that guy's head. Or I just want to get up and leave. Or I'm really scared. Because you are the adulterous woman. Or you're the stone thrower. I love when I was reading years ago on this, someone said, who are you in this story? Are you the pompous religious person, stone in hand? Oh, you know so much. You're so self-absorbed by your own goodness. God likes me because I'm so. Are you the crowd who just doesn't care because it's another moment? You're more concerned about life or Facebook or whatever? Or are you the adulterous person exposed now by the word of God? See, there is a moment, a holy moment here now where Jesus, because it says in the scriptures where two or three Christians gather, it is a guaranteed place of encounter. Jesus is actually in this room by his spirit right now. And whether you know it or not, some of you, Jesus is literally sitting in front of you and he's opening your eyes and he's saying to you, you are the stone-throwing person and I'm here to tell you Drop your stone, confess your sin, and let me meet you. Others of you, you are the adulterous type person, that archetype, and some of you are like, God would never want me. John, you don't understand. You don't understand what I've done in darkness. And Jesus comes and says, no, no. I know exactly what you've done. I was there the whole time. I don't want you to live that anymore. I'm going to say to you, I don't condemn you, and I have the power To a third group, he's actually coming to you and he's saying, you celebrate your adulterous lifestyle. You raise your fist at heaven and say you have rights. No, no. I'm the Lord of all the earth. Look and open your eyes and let me say to you, I do not condemn you. When I was studying this week, I love this tweet. I saw it from Tim Keller out of New York. Religion says, earn your life. Stone throwing. Secular society says, create your life. Adultery. Jesus says, my life for your life. 
That's the third, that's the third way. So if that is you this morning where you are the stone thrower or the deeply adulterous person in fear or celebration, I want to give you a moment to sit. I want us to just be silent for this moment. And if in the next few seconds you sense that you truly want to encounter Jesus, I'll lead you to him right now. So Holy Spirit, in this moment, I ask for godly sorrow that leads to repentance and life, not worldly sorrow that leads to death. Holy Spirit, come into this room and meet people. Bring the presence of Jesus himself. If you are the stone-throwing religious firebrand, just say, Lord Jesus Christ, I really want real life. I'm a sinner too. And the idol I've worshipped is me and my goodness and my arrogance against other people that I hate. I drop all my stones and all my hate and all my religious conditions and I look at you and say, I'm sorry, I need eternal life. Would you say to me, don't condemn me? Just say to me, you don't condemn me. I believe you died and rose again. Come be my Savior and my Lord. For another group of you who are the adulterous type person who thought God would never, ever want to meet you, let alone forgive you, just do this. Just say to him, Jesus, I didn't think you'd ever want to talk to me. No way. But if what that guy just said, that you actually know everything that's ever been done, if that's true, and you'd still forgive me, then I just say, Jesus, I believe you're the son of God. I believe you died and rose again. And in this moment, forgive me of all my sin. I need to hear at the core of who I am that you don't condemn me because no one else has ever said it to me. Give me eternal life. Into the last group, who celebrates a sinful experience. Just say, God, I've been so against you for so long by affirming and celebrating everything you say no to. And I'm so scared and angry, but I'm driven to meet you now. So I give up all my rights and dreams to hear you say, I don't condemn you. I want the lordship of God in my life. I want eternal life. I turn from a life of sin. If you would say to me, you don't condemn me. In the name of Jesus, all three groups pray. And we all said, amen. Could we stand and end simply this way? I said it at the beginning of the message. In this moment, a holy moment, but a significant one. And this has to come across right. Would you, if you are comfortable, would you put your hands out like this? In the scriptures, it says not only that we open to God, but we lift prayer requests up to God. So could we pray for every stone-throwing religious zealot in Durham? (laughs) And could we pray for every adulterous person and ask Jesus to meet them too? Oh God of heaven and earth, because you have set us free from ourself and our pride and our religiosity and our wickedness, 
we as one of your churches open our hands to heaven and plead with you, O Lord, in this generation that you would go by your people and your spirit and meet all the scribes and all the Pharisees and all the people in public and in private, in darkness. And we pray, we pray, we pray they would meet the love of God and they would begin to live a life where they go and sin no more. Oh God, we plead that in our day, in our time, we would get to witness. Witness this by the thousands. Oh Lord, do not relent. Save Durham from itself. Save the GTA from itself. We pray this because God is sovereign, because God is loving, and because God is all-powerful. Amen. Thanks for joining us. To connect to the ministries of C4, visit c4church.com.